Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Harshneed Beth and I spoke to Patricia Darris, Director of the Chilean Renewable Energy Association and also Managing Director and Partner of 350 Renewables, a boutique renewable energy consultancy. It is fascinating to hear about her varied career so far, and in particular, her insight into being a woman working in STEM, as well as both the challenges and opportunities she has faced managing interdisciplinary teams internationally. As always, we start by asking Patricia to introduce herself and tell us how she got to where she is today. Hi everyone, my name is Patricia Dares. I actually, I studied in Bristol University. I did a degree on aerospace engineering. Um, it was a bit unusual because I, I come from Spain. I had studied in Spain all my life. So um, I think normally the, the, the usual path is to go to university also in, in your country of birth. But um, I was, I don't know, I was really into Rolls Royce and, and Airbus and I really wanted to, to move to the UK and, and learn to speak English properly. And um, so, so, I applied. I did the. I went to the British Council and I told them I really want to apply to a UK university. What do I need to do? And they explained to me the UCAS process and uh, yeah, so I went for it. I thought, well, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but let's try it. And I got in um, into Bristol. I, I got into several other universities that did quite okay. Um, but um, Bristol was the one I like the most, and um, the first year was a bit of a disaster, <laughs> as it goes. Um, I think you know, you move country, you move place where you live, and um, it's it's really fun, but it's always hard because you're really far away from home, and it's it's a big change. Um, there's no going home at the weekend uh, to see your parents. I think I think maybe now it would be a bit easier, but uh, at the time. There wasn't really all these low-cost flights that came a bit later. But, you know, you get used to it. And afterwards, so I, I, I did my full degree. I, I finished with a with a 2-1. That was um, good. Um, but I finished uh, with a bit of a, of a feeling that... What do I do now? Because in the in the four years I'd gone from I really love aerospace engineering and the space industry to actually I want to do something that has a bit more meaning and purpose. No disrespect to anyone that has aerospace, but I don't particularly want to build missiles or control algorithms or something like that. I wanted something with a bit more purpose. And I didn't know what that was. And I think, you know, probably one message to take out of this is that it's okay to finish university and not know what you want to do. (laughs) What I did is I decided to do something completely different to sort of think about, you know, what kind of industry I wanted to get into, that I felt like I was doing something good with my work. So I started delivering letters. Uh, I became a postie for like a few months. <laughs> and that was great because, you know, you, you have to get up at, at, at four in the morning because you start at 5 a.m. to kind of sort out the post. <laughs> and after that, you, you get uh, three, four, five hours of delivering letters, which is quite a, a relaxing, active, uh, time to think kind of work. You know, you just got to grab the letters and put them in boxes. <laughs> you know, it's easy. But, but it's good. I mean, I think this gets lost a lot. You know, you, you're only going to be young once and it's okay. You know, no one's going to say to a 22-year-old or 23-year-old, you've wasted your life. You know, you're 23, for goodness sake, come on. 
it's okay. Like you give me a postie, that's that's fine. And um, I did this for three months, so all all the summer, and 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 it was brilliant. It was a good job. It was tiring. Uh, it also showed me that perhaps I didn't want to be in doing physical labor <laughs> for like the rest of my life. And I think that's also a useful lesson to learn. And it also gives you a lot of time to think. The other good thing about being a postie is that you get the whole day for free because you finish work. Like you've started to work at five. So like at midday, you're done your whole kind of day of work <laughs> and you're free. You can do what you want. Like you don't even need to go to the gym. You've been walking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> or on a bike so it's like it's fine you don't need to go to the gym you don't need to do anything you can just do whatever you want you know I applied for different kind of jobs I have to say that I didn't really give it my best because there were I, did, I didn't you know I didn't find applications where I thought oh this is really exciting this is what I really want to do but I applied for a PGCE uh, a postgraduate certificate of education uh, and I got accepted to teach um, science to 11 to 18 year old kids. That wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do, but I thought that would give me a bit of experience on managing people, building out relationships, managing my time, talking in public, feeling more confident about, you know, just presenting things and go back to basics a little bit on, you know, what, what is it about science, what is it about engineering that really I was interested in. It's, it's interesting because after an engineering degree, I know some people like were saying, oh, you know, the PGC is the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And in a way it is because kids are ruthless <laughs> and that's fine. You know, that's that's not a problem. That, that's a good thing. You get you get and cut feedback and filtered and, and that's good. Uh, that's brutal, but that's good. And But that's really hard too. Uh, so emotionally, it's it's really hard. But actually, the amount of work that I did during my PGCE compared to what I was doing in engineering was like a holiday. It was brilliant. But then the the emotional element was hardcore. You know, at the end of the year, one really good vacancy came up from this really, really good comprehensive school. Um, and everybody, everybody on, on my course applied for this job. <laughs> Um, so, in fact, my tutor, this is actually quite a funny one, but my tutor, when I told him I was applying, he said, oh, you're also applying. Oh, I wouldn't bother, like everybody's applying too. And I was like, well, fine, I'm going to apply anyway. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> so, so I went um, and applied and I did really well in the interview and, and I got the job in the end. Um, I was really excited about this. I, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a teacher at this point or not anyway, but but I got this really good job, so so I thought, let's go for it. And um, while I said my, my, my year in the PGCE was really easy, my first year of teacher, if teaching um, as a newly qualified teacher was super hard. That, that was really, really, really hard. You know, there's no teacher in the, in the room to save you. There's, these are your students, your responsibility, your classes, their results. Um, it's super hardcore, you know, it's, you're, you're 23 years old and, 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 and some of these kids are 17, 18 and, and, and it's your responsibility that they do well in their exams so that they can go to university. And you also, in a comprehensive, you get all sorts of people. Some of them come from really disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, and, and that's why I'm really glad actually that I did this before I got into work because it's very good training to realize that not everyone comes from, from, from the same place. 
and just to try to understand that what for you is a normal reaction doesn't necessarily have to be a normal reaction. I, I was teaching, I think, two years. And after one and a half years of teaching, I was like, this is good in that it fulfills the kind of social, meaningful, purposeful role that I wanted my, my job to have. But it's not very good in that I don't feel academically challenged. So there was something missing there. One of the one of the subjects that I really enjoyed teaching was renewable energy and, and climate change as well. Like uh, I was like, this this is a big thing. This is the thing of our generation. And and I'm not me talking just about my generation. Like the generations that are coming as well. We have a number of fifty, sixty, seventy years where everybody that falls into that kind of bracket, if they don't realize that this is the thing of our era, it's because they're not really paying attention. <laughs> and so I, I thought I want to work in the energy transition. This is really what I want to do. I think engineering for me at that point became something about what we are now, what we need to be as a society and what are the challenges to kind of do that transition. Eventually, I made it to a company, which was also, actually, I don't know if it was a spin-off from Bristol, but like the guy that formed the company then went on in his 70s to study a PhD in Bristol University. <laughs> he was doing, um, I think, paleontology of, of flight or something something along those lines, something quite quite interesting, but quite crazy. And, and I'm not sure if, if so relevant, but like super cool to be in your 70s and, and decide to do this <laughs> with your free time, right? <laughs> Anyway, so he and another guy that he knew from, from another venture that they'd done had decided to, to develop wind farms in the UK. And this was at a time where there was no wind farms anywhere in the UK. In fact, they they consented the second ever wind farm in, in the UK. And so they had a portfolio of projects that at the time was kind of, I mean, it was a lot on paper. Uh, they were trying to get consents. They'd got quite a few consents, but like there was nothing. Um, I think they were starting to build their first ever project that year. So, you know, I just told him a bit about what I was doing with my teaching and that I really liked renewable energy and the energy transition and all this. And he said, well, just go and have an interview, see what happens. And um, the company was called Wind Prospect. And so I went in, had an interview, and they told me, I don't know, like some of the interview questions were quite funny. They said to me, like, uh, um, how are you going to feel when you're in a room full of, like, NIMBYs who don't want any wind farms near them? And, and, and they say to you, you know, you're going there to present the project to them. And I said to him, I'm a teacher. I do this every day for, like, five hours a day, you know. I teach physics to kids. <laughs> And they hate it. <laughs> Some of them hate it. So I think I was saying after that. <laughs> yeah, so so I started working uh, for this company. You know, I was learning a lot of things, um, developing wind farms, doing like, uh, you know, all the permits, talking to the MOD about whether they were going to get permission in the areas where we wanted to plan our projects. So like coordinated environmental impact assessments with different kind of consultants, so like visual impact and learning to do photo montages, like where are the turbines going to end up with like the different um, contours and orography that we had. What else? Um, you know, we had to coordinate archaeology, bird studies, all sorts. Um, put it together into an environmental impact assessment 
filling all the documentation required from the different agencies and, and, and sort of submit the project. Around this time, it coincided that the the sort of anti-onshore wind sort of movement also started around this time and started getting quite popular. And so quite a few of those projects ended up, even though onshore wind is the most or was at the moment, at the moment is solar, was at the time, at the time it was the most economical way of getting renewable energy. Um, the projects unfortunately stopped getting planning consents at some point, like virtually all of them. I mean, I've, I've, I know one, it was near Strensham, um, like in the crossing of two motorways and it got not given planning permission due to like visual impact, like literally in the junction of two motorways and it was a sore to the eye. But anyway, <laughs> so I think it was two turbines, maybe three, no more than three turbines. Um, but the point is, I, I mean, community issues are also a, a big, massive thing that we can get into. And, and I think there's a lot of work to be done in that area um, and a lot of community benefits that should happen and, and not always uh, materialize. But uh, there's also a purpose, I think, and a sense of, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a lacking sense of urgency about this energy transition as well and and a lack of understanding on on the fact that we have a lot of work to do and it's going to have impacts on how we live not just the people that are near a wind farm or a solar plant or whatever but like everyone everywhere at all points um and and that's really kind of difficult to to get across without you know without trying to be nasty or disregard that some people may have genuine concerns, okay? But, but uh, you know, we need to balance this out against also the big picture. But anyway, so because this got so difficult in the UK, um, the, the company opened uh, a consultancy business that, that had international clients and, and other markets were kind of starting and they didn't have um, this issue. So like South Africa was, super hot in, in doing tenders um, and, and getting wind farms off the ground. And like Bulgaria also had some, some work happening. There were some projects in India and there were some operational assessments to see if the plants that were working already in Scotland were given the, the yields, the energy that, that they could, that they should be generating or not. Whether this was an issue with the wind resource or whether actually there was a problem operating the plant or something like this. So like um, when they opened this consultancy section, I, I got in and I, I really, you know, this this was kind of, this was getting back into the technical engineering bit, like uh, that that had been missing, I guess, for the previous three years. And I and I was good at it. Um, and, and it was, you know, and there weren't that many people doing it either. So, so it was a, it was a good way of, you know, learning new methodologies, trying to work things out and, and solving real problems. So I kind of, I think at that point I, I'd, I'd sort of um, found that bit that, that I didn't have at the beginning when I finished university and I was like, well, you know, I've got an engineering degree. What do I do now? <laughs> like, I, I don't feel like I know anything. I don't feel like I can, you know, like I know where I want to go. I don't feel excited about about the the jobs that I think are available to me. But but all of a sudden, I I did. I I really wanted to go to work. I really wanted to to solve these problems. Um, 
And so that was that was great. Um, I think at the time I must have been 25 years old or so. So it took me three years or so to, to work it out. You know, it, got, it gets to a point where you feel comfortable in what you're doing. And I did. Like I'd been, by then I'd been in the UK 10, 11 years, something like that. So I spoke good English and I like, I knew the work that I was doing and I was starting to manage sort of a team and train other people to, to do what I, I knew how to do. Um, but I felt too much in my comfort zone, <laughs> I think. Um, so, so I thought, you know, it'd be, it'd be great to kind of go to South Africa because South Africa is kind of Africa and it's kind of cool. And they also speak English anyway. So how hard can it be? Right. <laughs> so, um, and I'd, I'd been there only once, uh, on, uh, one of these consultancy trips, cause I did have a little bit of traveling and to do, um, so I, I tried to find which companies were in, in the different markets in, in South Africa or whatever. In this case, I applied to a job uh, for South Africa uh, for a company which was a, a wind and solar energy developer. And they were looking for a senior energy analyst. Well, I sent them my CV and the CV went well and they loved it. But unfortunately, the, the vacancy was full. Like they had already kind of um, interviewed and recruited person like a week before or something like that. And they said, but we have a great job for you in London. And I said, that's great, but no, thank you. <laughs> I'm super fine in Bristol. <laughs> I'm not into really high rents or like uh, commuting times or anything like that. That's just me, you know? And I think this is another message that I want to send. I know everyone is doing it, but you don't have to. <laughs> Um, it's okay. Like, you know, I, I told them, no, I said, I, you know, if I'm going to stay in the UK, I'm going to stay in Bristol because I love Bristol. It's got the right size. It's got the right sort of scene for me. I've got an allotment here and growing my veggies. <laughs> uh, it's great. I, I've got, you know, I've got a fish tank that I don't want to move to London. <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to go to London. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, that's a shame, but it's okay. I'm, I'm happy with what I'm doing. And two weeks later, they called me back um, and they said, we have a position in Chile that has opened just this week. What, what about Chile? What about Santiago? And I thought, wow, that's crazy. Like, I'd never thought about Santiago, but maybe, I mean, now we're talking. Santiago, yes, London. <laughs> anyway. So I talked to my to my boyfriend at the time, who who also was in in renewable energy. He was he was German. I mean, he's my husband now. <laughs> he's still German, and he's my husband. Uh, and I told him what you think about me going to an interview to get a job in Santiago, because I mean, that's kind of a deal breaker. <laughs> you know, London, Bristol, we can negotiate. Although I didn't want to negotiate that one. But Santiago, Bristol, that's a bit of a of a thing. But he was really excited about it too. Like uh, he said, great, let's let's go for it. Like I don't speak Spanish, so let's learn Spanish and, and, and do a couple of years there at least and see how it goes if, if you get the job. So I went to the interview and it went really well also and, and, and I got the job and well all of a sudden we were like oh like I have to find a home for my fish because, 
because I'm leaving. I'm going to Santiago. <laughs> um, and so it was exciting. Like the, the, the company was Irish. So, so there was a link there between the UK and Ireland. Um, but, and, and they liked it because I understood the working culture, the frame of mind of like um, Anglo- the Anglo-Saxon world. And, and, in, and on the other hand, they were having a lot of problems. I mean, cultural problems with the, with the Santiago office. Like part of the problem with this is that we kind of tend to think of language like something that, you know, you put into Google Translate and you get a translation and that's it. And in fact, my father said, you know, people are not going to need languages in the future because you'll just have an automatic translator on your phone and, and that'll be fine. But that kind of brushes off the fact that, I don't know, even in the UK, you say that's brave. You don't really mean that you're calling someone brave, right? Like, what you mean is, what the hell are you thinking? As in, honestly, like, what the hell is that? Why did you do that? And if you put it into Google Translate and you put that's brave, and I read it in Spanish, I actually think that it means <laughs> that that is brave. <laughs> So, so these were the kind of things that they were finding, and 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 this creates a lot of friction because it's like, you know, if you don't understand it, it's like you told me you were gonna call me, but you didn't call me, and the other person is thinking, well, of course I wasn't gonna call you. Like, no one ever calls when they say I'll call you, <laughs> and 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 so this leads to erosion of trust and relationships because it's not because people are trying to be you know, neither cheeky or disingenuous or lying or anything like that. It's just because they have different mechanisms for communicating the same thing. You, you can't change the frame of reference of a whole culture. So anyway, I ended up in Chile doing some really interesting stuff because they didn't have a lot of experience building wind or solar farms. Uh, it was great because, you know, all of a sudden, I was the go-to point of contact for a lot of things and and I got to work on lots of projects and in the company in fact they, they didn't have very much solar experience and that was also great because that kind of pushed me to learn things that I hadn't had a chance to work on before to work on projects in Canada and like California and in like the Middle East and in South Africa and be involved in you know a really fast-paced environment and, and learned a ton of things while at the same time kind of learning about Chile and what it was like and, and so it was it was really good. It's really, really good. Um and in the end I ended up starting my own company in, in Chile to to do consultancy and this is where I am. So I've kind of I don't know, like Santiago wasn't my cup of tea. Santiago was a huge city, crazy traffic, lots of pollution, but like um, you know, I I did like loads of things about Chile, like um, it has crazy mountains to climb up to like 7,000 meters high, crosses through the Andes of like six or seven days with your backpack where you won't see anybody else and like you have to cross several rivers, hot springs everywhere hidden in crazy places and uh, we decided to give it a go and uh, move to Patagonia a couple of years ago. So that's that's where we're living at the moment in a really beautiful place. And and that's what we're doing and, and it's going well. So so it's exciting. <laughs> in a very non-British, genuinely, you do have a lot of bravery. Cause I think coming straight out of uni and thinking, actually no, I'm not gonna just go through the typical route of 
all right, I've got an engineering degree. Now I'm going to go and do the same sort of graduate job that most engineering graduates do and to think actually I'm going to figure out what I actually want to do. It's a very inspiring story because now you've got somewhere where you're actually happy working rather than sitting behind a job and thinking, gosh, I wish I'd taken that time when I was in my 20s to figure things out. Yeah, but Beth, I think uh, an important thing to realize is that I didn't get into a job because I didn't get a job. Sometimes not getting that job, it's a blessing and not a curse. <laughs> and that's fine. If you end up, if I, if I had ended up with a great internship in, I don't know, Airbus or who knows, I wouldn't be here. I'd be somewhere else. <laughs> maybe good, maybe bad. I don't know, but somewhere else. Yeah, in the end, you get what's what's meant to be for you. But there is that pressure that we feel, especially when you come from a university like Bristol, that you have to go for those big grad schemes and do those like do, do those big internships, like have that path and do it straight after you get out of university. Not even like wait. it's not um, it's not that people say that to you. There's like an unspoken expectation that you will do this, you will follow this kind of path. How do you, what, what would you say to uh, graduates of our generation coming out as a graduate in the pandemic and maybe not having uh, a graduate scheme lined up for after university? How, how do you deal with that? Look, I'll, I'll give you an example. I applied for the Airbus graduate scheme when I get out of uni- got out of university and they didn't even invite me for an interview the first year. After teaching, I applied again uh, for this so like I was still looking I, I really wanted to work in energy transition renewable energy but I still applied for the Airbus and I thought you know I'm still within that bracket because you don't need to be 22 or just out of university they give you three years or so to apply for this credit scheme um, so I applied again the second time I got invited to an interview right about the same time where I got the job in this wind energy company and I turned them down. I said, thank you, but no thank you. Because I was interested in something else. If I hadn't got that job, perhaps I would have gotten to the interview. Perhaps it would have gone well, perhaps not. I don't know. But uh, um, I don't think it's a matter of closing doors if they're open for you, okay? So like, if you get that interview, if you get that internship, if you get that graduate job, I wouldn't shut the door, give it your best, but don't feel like that has to be the right path for you, okay? And and if you don't get it, also don't beat yourself up about it because there's hundreds of other jobs and things that you can do with your time, with your life, with your energy, with your brain. You know, that's, that's also okay. I mean, I'm 40 years old almost now. My expectation or my, my learning would be that, you know, just relax. It's okay. Your 20s are meant to be about finding out what you want to do, not about beating yourself up about not doing what everybody else is doing. That's okay. And and, and I think that that's going to be the purpose, right? Like what, what you're going to keep in mind is not I'm, not, I'm not as successful as this other person. It's like, really, like get your focus right. And the focus has to be on what do I want to do? What makes me happy? What makes me want to go to work? You can't go to work for eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 hours a day and not like it. That's a big waste of your life. That's tragic. I think that's that's really tragic. Even if you're in the Airbus graduate scheme, if you don't like it, that's really tragic. 
even if everybody thinks that you've got the best job ever. That's really, really tragic. <laughs> and, and someone has to say, right, if you don't love it, you have to leave it. <laughs> like maybe not the first year, you have to give it a good chance, okay? Like you have to settle in, you have to learn to do the work, you have, you know, there's, there's going to be hard times. I'm not saying the moment you have a hard time, you have to leave. But once you've given it two or three years of your life and you still don't like it and there's things that you can't live with, leave. That's okay. Like you gave it a go, it didn't work out and you left. It's like a relationship. Don't stick with a toxic relationship. It's a lot of your lifetime and energy. Ironically, it's, it's so hard knowing exactly what you want and, and knowing if or when you should leave. I think it's hard to know what you want before you have it. You, you can have some guidelines of what you want. You know, I, I want to, maybe, maybe I want to be useful for other people. Maybe I want to be altruistic. Maybe I want something that involves collaboration. Maybe I want something that makes the world a better place. Maybe I don't. Maybe I, all I want is to be mentally challenged. Maybe I want to have people behind me, a team that supports me, what I really like is managing people. I don't know, like different people tick with different things, but like the motivations of people are not so difficult. Okay, like there's, there's a lot of psychology and, and I think the Harvard Business Review kind of has several publications of what makes people tick. Okay, and, and, and I recommend that you read it because there's really not so many things like you, you'll find out that there's not so many things that make people tick. Some people just want to be useful. They go to contact kind of thing and work it out because you don't need to find out whether you want to develop algorithms for like this uh, unmanned vehicle business or whether you want to be a renewable energy person or like an energy analyst or whatever. Maybe that's not so important. Okay, that's not necessarily what makes you tick. But there's a number of conditions that are common to everyone that you need to find in a job and that are important. I mean, it's probably a good exercise to do it and, and actually think, you know, what really makes me feel good about what I do are these things. And you're not going to get those things when you get into a new job. That's just the way it is. When you get into a new job, you have to learn the ropes. But if after you've learned the ropes, you're not going to get any of those things and you've given it a good go, you have to leave. I'm not saying don't be resilient. Uh, I think it's important. Lots of people say millennials or seniors are not very resilient. I disagree with this. I think they just have different expectations from life or we have different expectations for life and, 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 and that's okay. I think it's really useful that millennials are the first generation that have said we can do things differently. Every generation kind of brings their own thing to the table and I think it's fine to, to be a generation of disruptors of saying why do we have to be in the office? Why do we have to have a set timetable? Why do we have to kind of all, you know, do things a certain way when there are other ways of working. I think, I hope your generation also brings lots of good things to the table. And, and those things have to be what are important for you. You know, you have to do this, this exercise. Maybe you don't have to do it in your 20s. I think eventually you will do it whether you like it or not. But you'll work out what is important for you, for 
you to be able to put your energy into something that you like and still feel good about what you're doing and yourself. I mean, it's clear that you've had a very um, international career so far, which is just amazing. But I think for people our age looking at a career abroad, it's quite daunting and quite scary. And what would you say to people who want to travel but are a bit like, how do they do it? What do we do? What I would do if I was starting is I'd go to work for an international company and I would try to see what opportunities they have abroad and I would move over. But, but you have to be clear that you are the one that has to make it work for the company. As in, the company is not the one that has to make it work for you. So you become first a useful person where you are in the UK, whatever, I mean, whatever you have ended up working. And then you kind of take that usefulness elsewhere and and try to build up from there. You also, I would say it's important that one realizes that these kind of things to be a fair exchange need to last at least for two or three years. So once you commit to going to South Africa, going to Chile, going to wherever you're going, you're stuck for two or three years and you have to make it work. Okay. And, and that's what's tough. Okay. Because it's cool to go traveling to Thailand for like a month or two or maybe three. Let's go crazy. Right. But to be stuck in Thailand for three years, that's harder. Okay. That's, that means that you're going to be the weird one that doesn't understand anyone. And I mean, that's an, I mean, you may understand the language, but you don't understand why they tell you that they'll call you and they won't call you. <laughs> I mean, the other thing is for me, at least it really helps that my, my partner, my husband now uh, travel with me. I think I wouldn't have lasted 11 years in Chile if we hadn't been together because in the end, I went to work and it was really hard at times. Like it was really fun. Um, I'm not just, you know, I don't want to take away any of the excitement of the work that I was doing or, or how much fun I was having or how exciting it was to be in a, in a new country. But it was great to be home and to be able to tell him the crazy things that had happened and, and, and how I just didn't understand it. Um, and bounce ideas of someone that just felt the same way. And in fact, if I think about it, like um, most of the people from the company that uh, they sent people on expat contracts from Ireland, for example, and they went with their wives and most of them didn't last more than a year because mostly their wives just couldn't cope because it's great. You know, you're at work and you're a useful person, blah, blah, blah. But what does the person who stays at home does? Like if they don't speak the language, if they don't have friends, if they can't pay the bills, if they, because here, like only like 10% of the population maybe speaks English. Everybody else doesn't. And, and when they take the kids to the park, if you live in a really nice area, for example, you don't meet other mums, like they're not in the park. They take a nana, which is a, a lady that normally helps looking after the, the kids. And they don't speak any English. <laughs> so like you take your kids to the park and you don't meet other moms <laughs> like you, like, uh, or, or, or dads or whatever, like you don't meet anyone. Um, it's, it's super kind of boxy sort of society. And, and, and in the end, I don't know, Chile has 18 million people, nine of which live near Santiago or in Santiago. 
um, if you live in a rural area, it's pretty much very, very little population. And if you live in Santiago, pretty much your cousins, grandparents, school friends, university friends, they're all in the same city. So it's like they don't have time for you, <laughs> you know? They have so many relationships and commitments that like uh, the core of the Chilean society, it's, it's also really difficult to kind of become part of the inner inner circle because it's really tightly knit because it's all in one city. So, you know, if you can get support and, and it doesn't have to be a partner, it can be a coworker or that is in a similar situation or or the other international communities like internations or there's forums on fa or groups on Facebook or Instagram or, or whatever, you know, you gotta build your network. It doesn't have to be, it, it's it's important just to, to not go at it alone. The, the, the one thing to take away is please don't look at this like you've just been given a machete to conquer South America, <laughs> right? Like this is like, take it easy, find some friends, find your space, make sure that you're comfortable in what you're doing and 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 get some support because it's going to be okay. And if you're going to be two or three years in a place, you know, you look at things a bit differently. If you're going to be one year, the first year is always really exciting, even if it's really hard. Second year is not so exciting. <laughs> and the third year, um, things start getting easier, but it takes about three years for things to start getting easier. And that's the timeline. And it's, I think it's the same in a job. That's why I said, you know, if you find a job and you don't like it, I think it's fair to say, give it one and a half, two years at least, and then decide. Because that's kind of the, the curve when you kind of get to the point where you realize if things are going to get better, or in fact, no, never, they're never going to get better. This is just the way it is. <laughs> In anything new that we start, there's always that learning curve. And then once we're over, the, over it, it just gets um, better. But it does take a bit of perseverance and resilience while you go through it. Circling back to like that same kind of theme around perseverance and resilience and going back to what you said about what you're being served as at, at the table, I cannot like not mention or ask about your experience as a woman in engineering. Um, so how... How did you find that being, uh, you know, a, uh, a girl, a woman in on an aerospace engineering course and then pursuing a career in the field? How was the experience? Did you find that it was easy or maybe a bit harder as a woman? How, how did you find it? I hope the young men that are going into engineering now um, continue to evolve because already at university I found a couple of really weird things not weird just things that that are hard okay because whenever someone goes to university you know it's nerve-wracking like you don't know if you're going to be good enough it's it's fine you've just been at school all the time and then you get taken out of your of your comfort zone and you get put somewhere else you don't know anyone everyone looks really smart <laughs> and and I think if you're a a, a young woman you know, you don't have any role models. I didn't have, I, I think I only had one female teacher in throughout my whole degree. We were 10 out of, I think, 90 or 100 students, something like that. Some of the girls dropped off. Um, I remember being put in teams at times and like, you know, one of the really tall public school guys, very confident guy, just, you know, deciding that he was going to be the leader of that group and everybody saying, yeah, of course, he's the leader. Like, he's like, two meters tall 
like talking really confidently and public schooling. <laughs> so, so that's fine. And then he was allocating the task and he gave everyone a task and then he came to me and, and like, um, and I said, oh, so, so what do I do? And he just said to me, you can just stand there and look pretty. And I was like, he didn't just say that, right? <laughs> but he had to say that. <laughs> yeah. And, and all of these things, you know, I, I don't think, you know, I think he was trying to be funny as in, I mean, regardless of how, how obviously inappropriate the comment is, what, what you don't realize is that when you're 18 years old and you don't know where you fit in the group and someone does that to you, that's really toxic. Uh, and it's even more toxic if the others laugh because that that sort of sets the scene for what you think you can do and for what other things, others think that you can do. I also remember, I told you that my first year was really bad. Uh, it was really bad. Like really bad means, I think I passed maths and Italian and electronics. That's about it. Everything else I did not pass. And there were a number of things why this happened. Um, I didn't understand. I, I didn't understand most of my teachers to start with. I had teachers from Wales. I never, like, I never heard Welsh in my life or anyone from Wales speaking English or Scottish. No idea. South African, no clue. Like, uh, in fact, even BBC English at the time was a bit of a of, <laughs> of a thing, you know. Um, I had one from India, great teacher, but like half of his lectures kind of went over my head. And I didn't know if he was the engineering, the English, the fact that I was a bit overwhelmed by everything. So I, I really didn't pass. And I thought, well, I'll have to do resets. And I got given a letter from my tutor uh, and from the university. And by this time, I had already got some rejection, so I knew <laughs> this wasn't a good letter. <laughs> right? <laughs> but it pretty much said something like, you know, here are your results. And kind of knowing you, we know it's not for lack of studying or for lack of trying um, that, that you got these results. So maybe you should consider something that is more in line with your talents. Like, for example, French and Spanish. Do you think a guy would have got that letter? They would have told him, dude, you have to pull your socks off. Come on. Like, you have to study. And, and, and this is the kind of, I think, subliminal and not so subliminal messaging that, that we get bombarded with day after day after day. It's like, you know, if, if, if you don't know something, it's like, well, she doesn't know because she's a woman. It's not like she doesn't know because... No one's told her. And no one's told her maybe because she's a woman. <laughs> so someone should tell her. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not a person that is particularly bothered about this group thing. Uh, because if I was, then I probably would have followed a much more traditional approach. And I probably wouldn't be a woman in engineering and, and a number of things. And, and we have to realize that this is a spectrum. But there are people, there are women that have this set up you know, they care about group thing and they still can be very talented for engineering. And why are they being filtered out? Why do they keep getting these subliminal messages of like, you just stand there and look pretty or you should just try French and Spanish instead of engineering? Those things are, are hard. Like when I go to Chile, this was even more crazy. It was like going back to the 80s in some ways because this is a lot more traditional as a society and 
Um, in fact, I always feel that I've been very lucky because I get to play the foreigner card. It's like I know that women are not allowed to do this, but like I'm not from here, so that's okay. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I've had colleagues here in Chile tell me something like, I like working with you, but before I work with you, I always liked working with men and I never liked working with women, that kind of thing. And I was so glad that uh, this person who told me this ended up having three do three daughters. <laughs> I was delighted. Like I keep I keep sending him messages now. <laughs> but anyway, um, so yes, I think there's a long way to go. And what what I would say is, there's lots of good men out there. Just surround yourself with those uh, and women. And make sure that, you know, you're not going to get rid of the messages that I've just told you because it's, it's, it's the same thing. You're not going to change society in one day. But make sure that at least you counterbalance them with others. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we end the podcast today, Patricia? No, I think I, th I, think I just want to reinforce the point that it's okay to follow non-traditional routes. Um, you can still... I mean, I think it's important to really find a view of success and it's not always getting the big job in the big bank or super massive company where they're going to get lots of money. Um, I mean, that can be for you, your view of success, but there are lots of others. It can be um, living in a nice place, having a work-like balance, having a job that satisfies you, having a job that is useful for the world, for other people for the environment um, and just being inspired with what you're doing with your time because in the end that's what life is about you have a limited number of time and you have to spend it doing useful things and things that fulfill you so that's that's just one little thing to take forward I think yeah it's been so wonderful listening to you yeah, and so inspiring. yeah thank you for for being one of our guests thank you very much super like, i'm really glad i hope you find what it is that you want to do in life and, and and you give it your all if you enjoyed this week's episode of ingenious please subscribe and share the podcast with friends we'd also love to hear your feedback to get in touch or find out more about us and our guests head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.